Hello, uh, joining me today, I have Dr. Nikos Satirokopoulos, uh, who is a senior lecturer in social sciences, social sciences at York St. John's University, director of ARI Europe, academic advisor to ALC UK, and a GB News sports contributor and Sky News contributor. He's also the author of The Rise of Lifestyle Activism, and his recent book, Identity, Politics, and Tribalism, The New Culture War. Welcome, Nikos. Welcome and to our audience, and thank you, Philosophical Zombie Hunter, for having me here. Oh, we, we very much appreciate it. So, your new book, I have, I have read most of it. It is extremely interesting and rich with information and examples. Uh, without me trying to ruin the introduction of it, would you like to just give a few sentences to explain what the, the book is about? Yes, so the book is trying to answer the question, what is happening in the world? And what I mean is we see a lot of things in politics that are toxic, that are disturbing, that depending on which side you are, you think that the other side has gone completely rogue. And the question was, is there anything that can put these threads together, that can link these different dots and create a thread? And I think that what can explain what is happening in the world is not a set of political ideas. So it's not that it's the left or the right who are causing this toxic atmosphere in the public sphere, because if this was the case, we wouldn't see the phenomenon where you see similar behaviors among different political groups, among people of different affiliations. So it can be one particular group that is causing the problem. So what is the problem then? It's probably something that has to do with the way that people think. That was my line of thought. And that's how I came up with uh, the idea that it's tribalism, the source of uh, the many of the problems today. And by tribalism, I mean the mindset, like the set of glasses that you put on and you see the world, yourself and others, not as individuals, but as members of groups. So first of all, you see yourself as someone who judges the world not based on your own thinking, not based on your own judgment, but based on what is, let's call it the party line, or what is the group interest here. And this is how you can explain how very often we see different standards, double standards. So let me give you an example. Let's say there's a sexual allegation against a conservative uh, candidate for the Supreme Court. We see, oh, believe women, we have to see, we have to see what happened. And that person is probably guilty until proven innocent in the eyes of uh, in the eyes of the public. But when you, and the conservatives say, no, you're trying to ruin the life of an innocent man and there is no proof and all that stuff. Then two years later, you see, for example, sexual allegations against a candidate who is uh, on the other political side. And you see a complete reversal. Now, the conservatives are saying, oh, there's something here. Come on, we need to, we need to believe this woman. And the other side says, well, we know it, there's one allegation in it so many years ago. Who could know what have happened? So my point is not who is right and who is wrong. That's a different discussion. The point is 
the interesting phenomenon that you see the same people in similar circumstances judging them under different standards based on whether their group is is uh, on the attack or whether it is on defense so to speak so this is a very quick overview of my chain of thought and the book has some uh, starts with a theory of what tribalism is why most of the research in tribalism i think it's a research which is not in the right direction because they see it almost as a instinct that we can't escape and then it has some case studies as you said on free speech on the race wars and on the gender wars because there's one thing i really don't want to happen and it is people telling me that i'm straw manning that's why i've used so many examples so many concretes as you rightly uh, as you rightly observed it's very interesting i mean in even in the example that you used um do you think people get caught up in the moment can they have an overview themselves and see and say to themselves look we acted like this three months before now it's the present it must be the same can i just snap out of it and say i'm i'm, I'm betraying my own uh standards yeah that's that's a very good question so no one wakes up in the morning and says today i will be a tribalist so everyone thinks in a way they are independent thinkers which is the opposite of tribalism but here's how it would look like for example so in the case of the conservative candidate to Supreme Court, the Democrat would say, look, we, I know there is such a thing as toxic masculinity, for example, and conservative men have this, white men have this entitlement, therefore I'm probably right. So you try to find reasons to prove yourself that you're right, omitting perhaps the big picture. On the opposite, the conservative would say, look, I know that mainstream media are supporting let's say the democrats therefore i'm sure that they are hiding information so it's what they call confirmation bias which i'm not entirely sure what's the exact definition is but it sounds like that so again your judgment your final court of appeal is not reality is not let me try hard to find exactly what happened it is what do i want to see what am I trying already? What so I have already decided and I'm trying to find proof. Notice how this is happening also with the vaccines, for example, right? So you have... Uh, uh oh that's, the, a, that's a difficult word, uh, Nikos. We're going to get demonetized, yeah. But, but we, have to, we have to tackle it because you remember last year or in the beginning of the pandemic and last year, the scaremongering side... They were, they were posting these, these uh, stories on Twitter, 35-year-old uh, in ventilation, uh, this is, uh, you know, we need lockdown. So they were, they were, they were trying to find these stories of these 35-year, these sad and tragic stories. And the other side was saying, oh, you're cherry-picking. One year later, for some reason, the party line now among men in the right, particularly in the US, is vaccines are bad. So what are they doing? They're trying to find these stories of these young athletes who have uh, heart problems and they say, see, athletes are falling like flies. Now, what is the problem here? In both cases, what you should do as an independent thinker is try and say, okay, these stories that I'm posting, A, why am I doing this? And how representative of the truth are they? For example, is it true that 
footballers are young athletes are quote dropping like flies or was it true for example two years ago that uh, it was typical if you are 35 years old and you got covid that you'd end up in a in a ventilator so again in both cases your horizon is not what is the truth your horizon is how do i make sure that i support my uh, that i support in a way the party line so you're not looking for the truth you're looking for quote your truth mm. and this is a this is not a good way to go through life first of all for yourself it makes you stupid that's uh, very interesting i i would like to go and discuss some of the themes you have in the book which i found very interesting mm-hmm. and i think are relevant but it's it's like a precursor to tribalism so what yeah. i would like to discuss is alienation mm-hmm. and i see alienation connected to tribalism from what i understand correct me if i'm wrong mm-hmm. as because you feel alienated uh you feel insecure uh and you have anxiety about reality and you need to then associate yourself with a tribe to feel more secure more connected to reality or well, i don't know if that's true but more more secure definitely uh and then the sort of alienation or, or perhaps perceived alienation causes people to try to belong to a group would you agree or disagree It's very interesting in all the discussions that I've done about the book you're the first one to bring this up and uh, it got me thinking. So yes there's definitely something to it. So the question now is why do people feel alienated and I'm very careful in how I use the term because this is a term that has been overused by marxists for yes. example they talk about alienation in a in a different way. I assume that the way you use it is people feel a lack of being in contact with I would say even the world being in contact mm. with other people. Now, why is this happening? The reason that this is happening is if you have for decades bombarded people with the message is that the world is scary. The world you cannot understand it. The world is too complex. There are all these powers out there to get you, the patriarchy, capitalism, or uh, or uh, the mainstream media or the zionists or i don't know whatever boogeyman everyone has then of course the world out there is a threatening place now add to this add to this the threat not the threat the the epistemological corollary which says that your mind is not enough to understand the world your mind is incapable of understanding the world at best it can give you a piecemeal understanding you know it can give you a white masculine understanding or it can give you a uh, or maybe there is even you don't even have free will so who knows who knows what you're doing in the world now this is a scary scary picture right it's like you i don't remember who i think it was nathaniel brandon uh, a guy who was an associate of ayn rand back in the day who in an essay said when you're told that your mind it cannot be capable your the world around you is like a haunted house mm. this house is like this house is in disneyland where you 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 open a door and there's nothing behind and you open the closet and there's like a ghost jumping out of the closet so it's a world that doesn't make sense and what is the only reaction you can have in the haunted house fear 
Equally, if the world is like a haunted house, your mere ex- you have metaphysical, to put it in philosophical terms, fear. Now, your mind doesn't work and you're afraid. What do you need desperately to do? You need to cling to other people. This is your only existential horizon. As I say in the book, you're like this, the scream, that painting by Muntz, Muntz, mm. what, yeah. how I pronounce. So you live in a universe of horror and you have to cling to other people. Now, let's concretize this. We, we hear these stories and we laugh where, let's say, a conservative pundit, Ben Sapiro, goes to a university campus and you hear... You see the so-called SJW saying that uh, Ben Sapiro is a threat, uh, is a physical threat to our existence. My fear is that these people actually believe that. These people actually believe that the presence of a conservative on campus is an existential threat for them. So I'm afraid that, uh, okay, afraid. I think, I worry that this existential fear is an actual thing with these people. And that's why they have this need to cling with others because they can only make sense of the world by clinging to others. And who will they cling to? People with whom they're alike. Yeah. In terms of, quite often, in terms of gender, in terms of race and all that stuff. So this is uh, this is my link between alienation and tribalism. Someone who is proud, independent, capable of navigating the world You need people to love. You need allies, but you don't need a tribe. You don't need other people to cling hands to desperate to find your way through the darkness. Because if you can't make sense of the world and the rest of the people can't make sense of the world, you're joining hands with other blind people. So it's the blind guiding the blind. Mm. So it's in Greek, we had the phrase called the person with the one eye. Is king in the the land of, of blind. Yeah, but in this case, it's literally everyone is blind because everyone is, uh, everyone is uh, incapable of making sense of the world. Except, of course, from the leaders of this movement, all these people who try to cast in and be the uh, the guide, the, the guides. But that's another uh, another issue. But I, for what it's worth, I don't think that this is mostly this atmosphere of today is mostly a result of people who are cynical and they try to capitalize on these things so there is no dark conspiracy i wish there was in a way because that would be easier to to fight it's it's a genuine fear and a genuine as you said alienation that drives people to to tribalism okay can i in your book you touch on it a lot but there is there are these ideas in our society that basically make us to, or at least this is what i feel it make us feel alienated i think that there's a history to these ideas so for so for example the old left or back in the time of of like between after marx died and before like uh, before like let's say uh the soviet union the alienation was specifically to do with capitalism uh being exploited you you, you know you, you're making things in a factory but back in the day you used to like make a bicycle with your own hands a toy in your own hands you feel connected to it but now you're alienated for it because you're like a a cog in the machine and in your book you gave examples today of the new left and have a certain new philosophy of alienation i'm i'm under the impression it's to do with it's not spiritual enough it's too consumerism too much consumerism 
And uh, what do you what do you think uh, to that? And, and why do you think it changed these ideas about what should be alienating you? Okay, so you are right about Marx and alienation, and remember that not necessarily definitely the young Marx, but mostly Marxists after Marx, like Lukacs, for example. They, there's all this focus on alienation, and then mostly with the Frankfurt School. But at least with Marxists, you have this idea that human beings are capable of change. They're agents of history. Mm -hmm. That's why, for example, if you see particularly the early Soviet art, you see the worker as omnipotent, strong, powerful. This is something which is completely missing. So the idea then was, look, capitalism is holding us back, but otherwise human beings are great. Human beings can achieve. Of course, what they achieved were concentration camps and misery, but that's another discussion. At least this view of human beings was human being the hero. So if you go and watch particularly early Soviet films, there is something that you can that you can like. I will not you, I can like at least. I I I I link there's something inside me that still, although I'm not anymore a Marxist, I like this film because they have this heroic vision. This is completely missing from the new left. The new left doesn't just say that. Capitalism is the problem, but if not for capitalism, humanity can flourish. Now it's existential bleak, existential doom. Mm. In and you read the Frankfurt School, you, you you read Adorno, for example, and there's not even an answer to that. There's not even a way out of that. And uh, so this idea is institutionalized that you are incapable, you are a subject to forces that you cannot control. And we don't even give you the boost that the old Stalinist, let's say, would give you. Say, you know, you, you're a very powerful worker and just wait till you uh, march through history. Now even this is out of the out of the question. So this is why, this is the main difference for me between new left and old left. Their view of the human subjectivity and of human agency, which in the new left, it's completely, it's completely gone. And the other thing, of course, is this idea of mastery mastery over nature. This was very big in old left. Trotsky said, our goal is more power of man on nature, less power of man over other men. Now, of course, we could say that this didn't happen through communism, but again, at least there was this aspiration of agency, of this control over nature, of mastery. Mm -hmm. Where is this in the new left? In the new left, this is a sin. This is something that should be avoided. What does, uh, for example, Marcuse and the others of the Frankfurt School say? They say that mastery over nature leads to mastery over man. Complete reversal, complete split. So this is why, okay, I don't want to be provocative and say I'd rather have the old left rather than the new left because the old left, I mean, the mountain of corpses would reach heights that are unprecedented. But at least in the way, in, in their existential view, there was something more aspiring there than uh, in the new left. What What is... I'm also frustrated at this. I don't understand what the end goal is. It seems to me like, first let's tear the system down, then we'll see what happens. It Or, or to me, it seems like the most um, authentic followers of communism today and still one communism, are the uh, Chaz and Chop communities that, were, that sprang up in, in the US during the riots last year. 
That that to me like is people who are trying to build something, even though it didn't really succeed very well. But I, everyone else is just burn it down. We'll see what happens. We we don't really know, but just burn it down for now. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't be so optimist about these communities because I've spent time, for example, with Occupy. I don't know how many of your listeners will remember Occupy around 2011 when there was this reaction to the financial crisis. There mm-hmm. was Occupy Wall Street, but there was also Occupy London. So I went to these people and I interviewed them and I asked them, what do you want? Why have you built these tents? Why are you occupying these squares? I didn't get any answer. I got answers. I include some of them in the books that you will read them and you'll say, okay, this guy is making this up. He's making a caricature. It can't be this. So there were people saying, well, who knows what our plan is? We live for the now. Or, well, we don't care about ideology. They are a thing of the past. We just I, I, occupy our ideology. So you see people who are building these spaces with a horizon of a week or so. And again, no agenda, no idea what they are about. So even so, even this autonomous space, for example, in was it in Seattle during the riots? Mm-hmm. Of course, as you saw very quickly, it uh, it fell down to anarchy, violence. There was this guy, <laughs> there was this muscular guy who was walking around with a gun, <laughs> who was like the warlord of the scene. So, for for the readers who have read Atlas Rugged, go to part three. And see how very, very quickly, for example, that, uh, okay, mild spoiler alert, if you haven't read, you know, close your ears. Uh, people who go to Project X and they occupy it and, you know, every two days there's someone else occupying it and their horizon is basically the next day. This is, this is how these movements that, quote, occupy space or there are, you know, we have no leadership, we have no, we have no structures, we have no plan, we just live in the moment. This is this is basically the hippie, the hippie view of life. So I don't see anything uh, out there. And at the same time, that's why they're not politically quote dangerous in terms of they're not a threat to any system because these people have no idea what they're doing and they're proud of it. It's not that I'm caricaturing and telling them you have no plan. They're proud. Yes, we have no plan. We have no ideology. We live in the moment. So that's that's what happens when you have no. Ideas. When you have no ideas, you end up your protest being, uh, oh, you know, going to be here. We're going to have uh, collective meditation. There were collective uh, workshops where you mm. kind of find your inner self and things like that. So basically, is we cannot change the world out there. So we will retreat on the inside and change ourselves, but not in a way like we're going to become more disciplined, more virtuous. So no, we. Find yourself, whatever that means. Okay, that's that's really interesting, especially the uh, connection to Atlas Shrugged. I wasn't aware of that. Um, I I would like to make a integration, Nikos. Yes. And I would like your opinion, and you tell me what you think. Mm-hmm. So, post financial crisis in the UK, mm-hmm. we have people, in my opinion feeling that capitalism isn't the answer. We have a sort of alienation from capitalism. We also have uh, a situation of immigration in the UK, post-Blair, people feeling that um, their culture is changing or they're not recognizing their, their local town or whatnot. And 
and again, a sort of alienation. And to me, it seems like things that were meaning, very meaningful in people's lives were missing. So post-financial crisis, a lot of people didn't have jobs and work for them is meaningful. They were looking to start families at some point and they were perhaps unable financially to, to, do, the, to do that. And the community was changing. Mm-hmm. And do you see a connection and I don't between the majority of the population, not just not just the fringe group, not just the 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 far left, but the majority of the population falling into this sort of alienation? So I see many people who indeed don't have the life they expected, and it's not always their responsibility. So, for example, I mean, in terms of things like finding a house or in terms of things like uh, having to pay a lot of taxes. Mm -hmm. So this this rings, this hits a nerve for me because this was the crisis in Greece. It was way, way, way worse. And this is why so many of us had to leave the country. Now, you could say that we got exactly what we deserved. By we, I mean Greek people, because this is exactly what the politicians we voted for, they delivered exactly what we asked for. Give us more, borrow more and all that stuff. So frustration is right. Frustration is, I would even say, healthy. But there are two things. First, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to start blaming forces outside you? And is this good for you? My answer is no. If you start saying, oh, it's the government and that's why my life sucks... First, you you can you have to start with what you can change, and uh, I realize that for many in the left, this sounds like like BS motivational speaking. But then my question to these people is: Okay, so if you have someone who is thirty and their life goes nowhere, is it healthier to tell them, "Oh man, it's capitalism that has screwed you," or is it proper to tell me, "Look, we find ourselves in a bad situation. Let's try and do the best." So on the one hand. It's how do you personally navigate this situation? The second is, what is your political reading of the situation? For example, if your reading of the situation is that it was capitalism and that now we need a Corbyn or a Varoufakis in Greece, whom we had, Mm -hmm. then whatever comes your way, brother, you've asked for it. As an author we probably both like would say. So... I have very little sympathy for someone who has suffered and the reading of the suffering is that now I need Corbyn. Because in a way you say, now what I have to do is I have to double down on the things that brought me here. So it's we have to be very careful. We have to be very careful. Again, the fact that we find ourselves in a world which is so far away from what it could have been, Mm. doesn't mean that it can't get worse. It can always get worse. And in a way, it will get worse, and it deserves to get worse. Here's what I mean about that. You mentioned the United Kingdom. Why shouldn't the next prime minister be someone hardcore leftist? You have a conservative government who sounds on almost everything like the left. They talk about our NHS, protecting our NHS, protecting our key workers. So they have to decide who is the key worker. Uh, you have the you have a government who 
decides which business is key, which business is not key. Mm-hmm. You have a government that can shut down businesses, that can that can do all these things. So if the quote right of this country is doing all these things, what should the voter think? They should think, look, if both these people and the left have basically the same principles, the same ideals, the same values, why shouldn't I vote for the real thing? If it's our NHS, who is going to defend our NHS more? Well, the left. So I told you I have no sympathy for the Corbyn voter. Maybe I was a bit harsh. I have understanding on why people might go to Corbyn because they say, look, everyone admits that this guy is probably right. Yeah, okay, he's a bit, you know, maybe a bit anti-Semitic, you know, but maybe a cleaner version of Corbyn. Maybe someone who is only the good ideals without the personal baggage that uh, Corbyn uh, carried with him. So this is this is uh, this is where we this is where we are. In a way, we deserve Corbyn or something like Corbyn. And by we, I mean the country. Uh, by the way, I mean the UK. That's why I use this as an example. Uh, staying a bit on this topic, I before going back to the book, I wanted to ask: today's politics. <sighs> It's a bit different than what we used to. You mentioned that uh, the right is acting in a, in a large degree like what the left would act. Mm-hmm. And the left seemed to go a different direction entirely. What old left would be, you know, the workers, the labor, was, the name is labor, obviously. Uh, and conservatives were the Eton class, the, uh, yeah, you know, upper class, whatever, or middle upper class. Uh, or business class, and um, now it seems to me, and, and I don't think this is too controversial, but, and I believe uh, Rhys Mogg said something similar, the Conservatives are the Workers' Party now, they're the one appealing to the Workers' Party, and the left are all the student class and the minority class, in my opinion. So um, yeah. what, what happened from old-school labor, Marxist, unions as the core to this sort of evolution? So for the left, the working class is a problem. It's not an asset, it's a liability. And it has been this way since, again, the 1960s. There is a line in Marcuse's, Marcuse is perhaps the most influential new left thinker, Uh, a line in his book One Dimensional Man that I keep quoting because it's unbelievable in its honesty and on, on, on what it signifies, he says something like, if the worker and the boss are driving the same car, or if the, if, if the, if the wife of the boss and the young, let's say, receptionist, if they read the same magazines, he says, this is a problem. This is a problem because it, it deepens the alienation of the working class. So what Marcuse says is that we liked the working class when there was this basically impoverished part of the population, but now that they can have a better life, now they're not anymore good for us. And if, if, you, if you think that, again, I'm making this up because this is too harsh, go read One Dimensional Man. Or see, for example, the narrative of the left on the actual working class of the United Kingdom when it came to Brexit. Mm. 
They present them as racist, as bigots, as xenophobic, and basically as stupid. Mm. So the old elitism of the conservatives, of the not even the of the aristocracy towards the working class, you see it in the left. So the left is always has been in a way in its leadership, mostly a upper class movement, again in its leadership. But these days it's openly like that. It's the party of mostly the public sector or of the managerial administration, the human resources departments, as you, you mentioned, the universities, the teachers, and they are social engineers. Social engineers. And who is the subject to be mostly socially engineered? Who are the people that need to be more like us? The working class. And you see this everywhere with the nudge, the so-called nudge politics, the politics of lifestyle, of health. Oh, you know, these people, they don't know how to raise their children, they smoke too much, they eat too many fats, they don't know how to shop healthily, so we need to... We need... So the working class is a problem to be solved by the left, but not to be a political problem, but almost an administrative problem that these people need to be administered better. By the way, there's something very Foucauldian in that. So Michel Foucault has been this hero of the new left, but I think Foucault, if the left would open their eyes, they would see Foucault today from the grave would say, hey, I'm, I'm saying these things for you. You are... You are the, the, the people that I warned uh, against. Anyway, we, uh, we, we opened a new chapter here, so I'll, <laughs> I'll get back to you in making sure we don't jump around. By the way, uh, what, uh, if the left are social engineers, what are the conservatives? The conservatives are, in most countries, when it comes to their, to their politics, a political machine. So it's mostly career politicians that they will try to slightly differentiate themselves from the left. But beyond that, they're mostly... Either they appear as a... as an That we're not as crazy as the left, or they might ride into the legacy of the past. So, for example, the UK conservatives do have a claim to say that Thatcher saved this country from becoming the Greece of the North... Uh, so the, the, there is a semblance of something that, yeah, we, we are different from the, from the left. But it's a good question. I haven't got an answer because I haven't thought of it. Uh, I haven't thought of it that much. But my, or my initial answer would be the right is either a political machine or a force that can only flourish in the culture wars, mostly in the United States. As a reaction? As a reaction, yes. So the right is reactionary, and I'm not using this as a, I'm not using this as a slur. I'm using this factually. So the right almost always has been reactionary. For example, the right rises up with uh, people like you know Burke or then Carlyle and things like that as a reaction to the French Revolution, as a reaction to uh, liberalism, as a reaction to the Industrial Revolution. Then you see, for example, the authoritarian right of the 20th century rising as a reaction to communism. Or then you see, in the, the, for example, the new evangelical right in the United States rising as a reaction to uh, the counterculture of the left in the 60s. Or today, the Trumpian right 
mm-hmm. the rising as a reaction to SJWs and all that stuff. So they're always behind, always catching up. And almost never with something very, very, very new and something of their own. I mean, think about this way. What did fascism have to offer in terms of, I mean, even, even if you try to see it as sympathetically as someone who could see it, let's say, in the 30s. And there were people who were who made this mistake, who think, oh, these are anti-communists, therefore let's see if there's something there. What did it have to offer? Or what did the new evangelical rights in the 70s had to offer? And I'm not saying, of course, that there's any link between fascism and new evangelical right. What I'm saying is it's very difficult to find a movement in the right that is not a reaction to something. And this is something which covers both the mainstream right and the far right, and even the worst expressions of the far right. They're always a reaction. This is why all there is this very, I find it catchy line, I think by Michael Miles, who says conservatives are progressive driving at the speed limit. Yeah, I, I also was wondering, it's like uh, the left only slower. Yeah, the left only slower. And they admitted, they admitted, there was an article in, uh, in The Atlantic, which was called What Happened to American Conservatism? And the guy who makes an honest attempt to understand what happened in the, in the, in the conservatives and why are they finding themselves with, with Trump, he says, well, conservatism is about peaceful and slow change, but we have to be humble, you know, we have to be slow. And the question is, peaceful and slow change towards where? If you don't know where you're going because you say you're epistemologically humble or, you know, we follow traditional, so you don't know where you're going to. So basically, you just follow the left and you try to, uh, come on, guys, not so fast. So this yeah. is this is, this is is the right today. Either the police guy is not so fast. So this is, let's say, the ultra boring conservative who no one cares anymore. Or we have the people who say, okay, we're going to be exactly the opposite of what the left is, which means we're going to be the other side of the coin of the left so i would say they look more and more like the left which is the populist right uh, you know the trumpian right the tucker carlson right which though i will recognize they have an energy which is appealing to many young people and to many people who as you said are alienated and who have made the right observation that something is very rotten here and something needs to change mm. unfortunately <laughs> They won't find the change when they're looking at, but that's our discussion. They'll keep trying. Anyway, I'll I'll want to get back to the book, and I want to get back to a much much more somber uh, topic mm-hmm. uh, about tribalism and the connection to genocide. Now, mm. in your book, you mentioned briefly the uh, Tutsi genocide in Rwanda. Now, I find this very interesting. In uh, full disclosure, the topic of atrocities and genocide is something that I do study and I do have a long video on my on my channel about how atrocities happen it's it's a topic of research it's a topic that I rely heavily on the work of Leonard Leonard Pikoff Hannah Arendt Karl Popper and um, I have not used the example that you used I thought it was really fascinating because when I use examples I usually use like oh communism socialism on the one hand and uh, Nazism on the other. But uh, why do you, uh, I mean, I, I would like you to explain the, uh, what was the tribalistic element that happened in Rwanda? So in Rwanda, we have something which in a way is unprecedented. 
We have two communities, the Tutsis and the Hutus, and they have been opposed to each other forever for various reasons, mostly political reasons. But you have people who, ethnically, religiously, language-like, they have no difference at all. They have no difference at all. So the only way you can say, is this a Hutu or a Tutsi, is you have to know them personally. There's nothing else that can indicate who is who. And you have a country, and this is a big misunderstanding that the, the, the West is making. They think that Rwanda was this kind of quasi-primitive uh, society. No, Rwanda was a society which I mean, one of the main languages spoken was English. Christianity was very much, very much uh, developed. And before the atrocities, before the massacre, I don't think I use the term genocide because there are some people who claim, well, technically it wasn't genocide, but I mean, what happened was a monstrosity, so it doesn't matter what the technical term is. Even months before the monstrosity, these people are living together, literally living together sometimes. And then within something like a hundred days, we have an orgy of violence where quite often you are invited to kill members of your own family. So your wife is a Tutsi. You are expected to kill your wife. Why? Loyalty to the group. Loyalty to the group. So that's why I think Rwanda is an example of tribalism. And we have something else. Because it is relatively recent, so how many years ago now? Like 20, 26, 27 years ago. The murderers, the, the genocide, the, the mass murderers are still alive in prison. And people have went and talked to them. And they asked them, why did you do it? Why did you murder, for example, the sweet lady that was your teacher or your nurse? And they said, look, we know. We know she didn't do no, she didn't do anything. We know she, someone says she was the, the sweet nurse who would put uh, uh, things in our wounds to heal them. But they had to do it because this is the tribalist mindset. It tells you that group loyalty is above your own interest, your own mind, your own judgment. This person is not an individual. It's not the, the sweet lady that has healed your wounds. It's a tutsi. And since he's a Tutsi, he has to be massacred. Even if, and you are expected to kill your own family member because they're, because they're a Tutsi. So it's, and, and some people have given me criticism for using this example because they, oh, you don't understand. There's all this background in Rwanda. Yes, there is all this background in Rwanda. But at the very end of the day, it comes down to one group massacred another group. They didn't massacre, quote, their oppressors. I massacre my oppressors means I go and massacre, I don't know, like the, the administration or the police or whatever. No, when you massacre your family member or your friend, you don't see it as oppressor. You see it as this group, every part of this group is a representative of the group itself. And I am a representative of my group. This is tribalism at its purest, at its most destructive. And this is why I get pissed off when people say, well, we need a bit of tribalism because otherwise you're going to be lone yeah. wolves. No. Yeah, yeah. If the essence of tribalism is Rwanda, you need absolutely zero. Whatever that is, you need the opposite. Oh, it's always a very difficult uh, subject to talk about. I mean, 
I I don't I don't really know what the end goal was there because I I know that I know that the they had like sort of like hatred between the two groups ever since the Belgium were in control and the Belgium saw the Tutsis as more white like and they gave them all these uh, higher positions of administration and, and they were able to get jobs from that point of view and I I know things were like I, I it's not it's, it's not even something I I usually study which is frustrating to me because I've studied really a lot on atrocities but it was always like behind some sort of I- ideology the ideology was what made people tribe tribal like exactly uh, it, and and it's the issue also of the lack of judgment that tribalism leads you so let's not go that far what about Greece for example and it's uncritical support for the Serbians in the Yugoslav civil war, including myself, for example. Milosevic was more popular in Greece than he was in Serbia. So for years, we're trying, you know, rationalization. Well, Srebrenica, well, was it really a genocide? Well, you know, atrocities do happen. And again, without knowing anything, all we knew was Serbia is our Serb brothers, our Orthodox brothers, Therefore, they're definitely on the right side. Now, don't ask me to find what happened and whether it was a genocide. We are with our Orthodox brothers. Now, again, I this is not a statement of judgment on who was right and who is wrong on the Yugoslav civil war. Maybe the Serbs were right, maybe they were not. My problem is not with the judgment itself. My problem is how we reached that judgment. And how we reached that judgment was that Serbs are our Orthodox brothers, Therefore, and also the West doesn't like them, therefore, they're probably on the right side. Therefore, go Serbs. So that's that's the problem. My problem is not with the essence of the conflict. My, es- my problem is how we pass judgment on this conflict. So again, you don't have to be a tribalist just to be the, mas- the guy who carries the Masetta, the Masetti in Rwanda, or the guy who uh, executes in Srebrenica. When you judge this phenomena and when you take sides and when you rationalize and when you evade, which means you don't want to see the truth because the truth might be uncomfortable for your side, then you're a tribalist as well. And you share share a similar mindset. Okay. Um, Lastly, what advice would you give people to notice if they are being tribalistic, how to snap out of it, and what direction should they take instead very roughly yeah uh, i'm not good at this because i'm i'm falling victim to troubles quite often so i had a, an interesting discussion with this with uh, don watkins who is a who is a an author and a part of the objectivist community and he gave me three interesting advice in terms of checking yourself whether you're a tribal the, f- the first one is what would be your take if People you really trust would be on the other side. So let's put it this way. I'm just using this as an example. Let's say you follow Joe Rogan. And Joe Rogan, let's say, is a bit skeptical about the vaccines. What would happen if Joe Rogan or uh, Chernovitz or, I don't know, or uh, Tim Pool or whoever else is like a thought leader in the, uh, let's say, quote, anti-establishment right in the US. If these people would turn side, would you also turn side? Because if yes, this is a sign that probably that you are probably not having made up your mind, but you're mostly doing this, you're mostly following this line due to tribalistic 
reasons. And again, I, I see this also to myself. So for example, for many years, I didn't have a very clear uh, view on why abortion is, uh, is, is, should be allowed beyond the first, let's say, semester. I kind of know that the people I trust agree with the view that you know it should be allowed even beyond the first trimester. But if you ask me, do you have a personal view on that? I would say maybe not. So at some point you have to say, look, I don't know enough. I need to learn more on these things before I make up uh, before I make up my mind. So this is a th- there are many ways that you can check. I, and again, it's not easy because no one wakes up in the morning and says, today I'm going to be a tribalist. But it it would be interesting to ask yourself, you know, how much how much information do I have about this? Or if this is something that the other side would do, how would I react to that? Or what if one of our guys would do this? How would I how would I react? Uh, how do I react to this? So this is this is one this is one way, and there are more ways, but. It's mostly, I think, instead of just giving, you know, tips, it's having the ambition to be an independent thinker. Having at least the ambition to say, I will try to work hard to understand what is happening. And this can bring you to difficult positions. For example, I've changed my mind on the populist right in the United States. At some point I thought, well, maybe they're anti-elitism, you know, maybe there can be a good a fertile ground for a you know, radical rethinking of politics, you know, like the Tea Party. And then uh, some vanguard is going to take over, uh, this vanguard being you know, rational people, and this can bring a huge political change. Turns out I was wrong. And I, again, I saw this lately and with their whole take on the pandemic and all that stuff. So you have to, you need to have this thing that I'll, I want to try hard not to be a tribalist. And why do you do this? Do you have duty to someone not to be a tribalist? No, only to yourself. Because tribalism makes you stupid, literally. So it's, the problem with tribalism is not that it makes the public sphere annoying and makes Twitter an annoying place to be. The main problem with tribalism is it's a bug in how you think. You don't use your mind in its 100% capacity. And this is why you would have, you, 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 you should aspire to be an independent uh, thinker. Mostly do it for yourself. It's going to make your life easier. And the techniques on how to do that, uh, again, different people are going to find different things. But once you have the aspiration, you made the important step. Okay, Nikos, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, thank you. I hope, I hope I'll have you back on the show at some point. I uh, hope this as well, and I appreciate you spending time with my book and asking a meaningful question. That that means a lot. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye.